I'm happy to tell you that the Sheila Story's full collection is now available as a novel on Amazon. To find the book, go to your Amazon marketplace and type The Sheila Stories by Patrick Kelly into the search bar. Welcome to The Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get everyone back up to speed, in our last episode, we heard the story, A Writer by Training. And during the story, Sheila met Jesse Flynn, an American war reporter for the military newspaper, The Stars and Stripes. After several months of spending time together, Sheila realized she had strong feelings for Jesse. But then he was shipped out to cover the battles in the Philippines. Now, in Thomas's world, the tenant Chris Carboni moved out of the garage apartment because she didn't want to be just friends. Thomas's daughters were mad at him when Chris left, but they forgave him when he confessed that he was broken in the ways of the heart. Now, in today's episode, which is titled Honor Ride, Sheila will worry about Jesse Flynn as he covers the fighting on the Philippines and the Japanese island of Iwo Jima. Honor Ride Sheila walked from her family's house in Chatswood to the little park three blocks away. She sat on a bench near the pond. Two young mothers watched their children feed the ducks. An old man played fetch with his golden retriever. Laura Keats chirped at her from the nearby pines. She opened the letter. She liked to read Jesse's letters outside, away from the house, where she could savor his words alone. If she concentrated, she could hear his voice reading the words to her. His letters were different from Collins, long, meandering, and beautiful. He wrote of the barrage of the offshore guns firing to soften the enemy. He described the fear and determination on the soldiers' faces in such detail she could see them. He wrote of the islands they invaded, the beaches, the flowering plants, and the indigenous people. I want to write about those people. Not a newspaper story, a full-length novel that brings to life this time and place. I want to write about a small island where the people live in peace for a long, long time, only to have their lives torn apart by violence. Despite the violence and oppression, when the last soldier has gone and the world has forgotten the island, the people will return to their old ways and live in peace again. I fear I will never write that novel. Not that I will be killed. There is little risk of that now, for I wait until the last bullet flies before I advance, just as I promised. No, instead, I fear life will consume me before I write a word of that book. I fear life will relegate me to the sidelines. He spent January and February in the Philippines, covered the Marines fighting on Iwo Jima in March, and moved on to Okinawa in April. After nearly six years, the war still dominated the news, although everyone thought the Allies would win. 
Many of the soldiers in her program had returned to their hometowns. Fewer new patients arrived. In Europe, the Americans and Russians were closing in on Germany. In the Pacific, the ring around Japan grew tighter. The Americans won victories in Guadalcanal, Manila, and then Iwo Jima. Although doomed, the Japanese kept fighting. Some believed they'd surrender only after losing the island of Japan itself, which could take a year or more. Why wouldn't they give up? Their leaders allowed the horror to continue. Soldiers and sailors died. Civilians died. Journalists died. On the second day of the invasion of Aijima, Ernie Pyle, the famous war reporter, was killed by machine gun fire. Jesse had promised to return, but only after she forced him to, and he had little control over his own safety. The young mothers watched their kids play on a swing set. Where were their fathers? Would they come home? Would this damned war never end? Sometimes she felt empty, drained of all energy. She imagined Jesse riding in a jeep on an island road with palm trees nearby. He joked with the driver. A glint of light reflected from a metal surface hidden in the bush. A single shot fired. A man fell. No, he had to survive the war. He must. If he never returned to Australia, if she never heard his laugh again or felt his arms around her waist or the brush of his lips, so long as he survived, she would carry on. She could handle any future except for one in which the war claimed his life. In June of 1945, she sat at her desk across from Irene in the administrative office. They had everything organized for the trip to Randwick the next day. Fifteen disabled soldiers had signed up, a single busload. The war continued to wind down. One of the hospital camps had been dismantled, and another one was only half full. She picked up a neat stack of papers and glanced at each one, everything in order. She straightened the pile and lined it up with the edge of her desk. She opened the drawer. Every item was in its place. Maybe the pencils should go on the right and the pads of paper on the left, instead of vice versa. Now, what nonsense. But perhaps she should go through the stack once more. Irene was staring at her. What? Sheila said. Nothing. Go ahead. Tell me. Sheila kneaded her hands. Her fingernails were gnawed to nubs. Irene shook her head. Not after the way you swore me yesterday. Felt like a shark bite. I don't remember swearing, but Irene kept her mouth shut, a fool-me-once expression on her face. Had she come on that strong? What had Irene said to deserve such treatment? Oh, she had asked about the mail. Why didn't Jesse write? She hadn't heard a word in three weeks. He had written from Iwo Jima, but the Americans had won that battle months earlier. Was he still in Okinawa where the fighting continued? God forbid he should be killed. How would she even find out? They weren't married. The U.S. Navy didn't send telegrams to Aussie girlfriends. Irene wouldn't look at Sheila now. She held a compact in one hand and reapplied her lipstick. I apologize, Sheila said. Her voice sounded shaky. That morning, she'd skipped breakfast for lack of hunger. But her pants had felt loose, 
so she cinched the belt another notch. Her face was thinner in the hallway mirror, her neck longer. She was not the bright-eyed girl who had moved to Queensland with a pocket full of money and a head full of dreams. Don't worry about it, said Irene. We're all on edge these days. You know what it is? It's hope. We expect the end is near, so we begin to hope we'll see our loved ones soon. Heck, when Bobby left, I was 17 and had never worn lipstick. She snapped the compact shut and returned it to her purse. Now I'm 21. He won't recognize me. Irene's brother, along with the rest of his brigade, had surrendered in Singapore in February of 1942. Stories of horrific prison camp conditions, forced labor, starvation, and torture had made their way into the press. For goodness sake, if the pity party continued, they'd soon blubber all over the desk. Sheila sat straight, pulled her shoulders back, and grabbed a notepad from her desk. All right, she said. Let's brainstorm things we can do to make tomorrow's outing special. The soldiers deserve that. Irene turned her head to the side. Her brow furrowed. I know. Flowers. Flowers, said Sheila. For men? White chrysanthemums. Boutonnieres on their lapels. I love it, said Sheila. What about a hand-painted sign on the side of the bus? Yes, said Irene. Red, white, and blue, with two flags on the front. Australian and American. Sheila said, We'll call it the honor ride to make them feel like the heroes they are. Sheila started her list. More ideas came to them. American fare for lunch. Hot dogs, maybe. They would ask girls from the entertainment unit to work up a sing-along. Irene gazed over Sheila's left shoulder, frozen, her eyes glistening. The talk of missing men must have gotten to her. She sniffled, probably thinking about Bobby. But something about her manner didn't fit with worry. Her face relaxed. She blinked a few times, and a tiny smile came to her lips. Sheila turned, and there he was, fiddling with his hat in the doorway like the first time she'd ever seen him. Jesse Flynn. She knocked her chair over, ran toward him with outstretched arms, and felt him pull her close, chest to chest, real, warm, and alive. He smelled like he'd worn his clothes for a week, and he had dust on his neck and around his eyes. You bastard, she said. Why didn't you call? I came straight from the airplane. Never mind. Kiss me again. After a month on Okinawa, his superior had asked if he wanted off the line. Heck yes, he'd said. Send me to Sydney. And now he stood before her with a tired smile on his face. The sun was hot for September, and they had driven an hour north of the city to Palm Beach. Even this far away, a fair number of soldiers, both Americans and Australians, had come with their girls for a day of fun. She sat on a blue towel on the southern edge of the beach and watched Jesse try to surf. The water was cold for her taste, but he had insisted. Her eye traced the wave break along the curved beach to the end. Jesse had said they would not send him out again. The war was winding down. The newspapers speculated that the Americans' new bombs, 
the ones they dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, would hasten the end. But no one knew for sure. A hundred thousand people had died, civilians mostly, horrible to even think about. But if it brought the war to an end, the bombs would save another million lives. How could the world have come to this place? How could they face such awful trade-offs? She had hoped for peace, prayed for a day like this, with a picnic on a beach and no fear of Jesse going into battle again. She could hardly believe her luck. They had spent many evenings together since he'd come back, gorged on seafood and steak and dancing. She had regained her weight, but the tension lingered in her neck and back. She took a deep breath. He caught a nice wave and turned the board to extend his rod, sure-footed. At the end, he waved to her, his smile visible from a distance, and then he turned to paddle out again. He was a better surfer than Colin. He had the instincts for it, the daring and coordination, plus the joy. He craved the speed and the thrill. As much as she loved Jesse, she had never expected the relationship to last. Soon, orders would come to pull him back to the U.S., and she would never see him again. He would write letters for a while, weekly at first, and then every other week, and then monthly, and then not at all. His work and the novel would draw him in, and then he'd meet someone new. She would do the same, and their relationship would fade into little more than a fond memory. She could accept that, to have this day, these few hours of fun on a beach with a man she loved, with no fear of him going off to war. That was enough. Feeling sleepy, she lay on her towel and closed her eyes. She thought of Manly Beach, of sitting in the sun and watching children swim. The lifeguard would blow the whistle if they drifted out too far. The waves crashed and rolled up the beach. Someone else's whistle blew. It sounded different. That wasn't a lifeguard whistle. It was a car horn. Beep, beep. On and on it blew. She woke up. Manly Beach became Palm Beach. Jesse rode another wave. It had been a dream. So why did the horn keep blowing? Several horns blew at once. Cars raced along Ocean Road, a line of them, six or seven. She stood, shielding her eyes from the bright sun. The lead car stopped and the driver hopped out. He yelled something, but she couldn't understand him. She walked toward the vehicles, and the driver kept yelling. More drivers joined him, and then she heard them. The war is over. The war is over. Japan has surrendered. She turned and ran toward the surf. Jesse finished his ride and looked up. She screamed it out. It's over, Jesse. It's over. She cried, the tears unbidden. But it didn't matter, for she was in the water, lunging through the waves, still yelling, until she fell against him, hugging, falling, laughing, so happy, both of them so happy. They rushed back to the city, cleaned up, and went out to celebrate. People crammed the bars so full they spilled into the streets. Everyone cheered, sailors, soldiers, and nurses, Aussies and Americans, strangers danced together. In the middle of the street, a sailor approached her with a grin on his face. Jesse was standing right beside her. May I have this dance? he asked, his hand offered most politely. 
She could not refuse. He twirled her around a few steps and dipped her with his hand on her lower back. Then he lifted her, tipped his hat, and walked on. Her breath was short. It had all happened so fast, and Jessie only laughed. After three hours of drinking and dancing, they found a restaurant with an open table. They had steaks and wine and dessert and coffee. Back outside, the celebrations showed no sign of ending, but he led her away from the crowds, past Circular Quay, and on to the Royal Botanic Garden. The park was quiet. Couples strolled hand in hand. Some stood at the water's edge and watched the moonshine on the harbor. He hardly said a word. Unusual for him. Why did he bring her here? Let's find a bench, he said. I want to sit for a while. So that was it. He wanted to make out. But other couples with the same idea occupied the benches. They ventured deeper into the park, and the shadows grew longer. Her nerves tweaked like she'd had too much coffee. They would recall him for sure now. The army would send the men home as fast as they could. She wasn't ready. Surely his commanding officer could give him a month of peace in Sydney with his girl. Didn't they deserve that? One month? A few weeks? At least that much. They found an empty seat under a palm tree. Shadows of fronds danced on the pavement. Did he sense the perspiration on her hand? There's something I need to tell you, he said. Oh no, here it comes. I can't come up with the right words. We've had a great time together, ever since that first outing at Randwick. I've never had such fun. I'm sure lots of American girls are as fun as me. Well, sure, fun, but not the same, if you know what I mean. No, I don't. They'll recall me soon. You must know that. I guessed. And Sydney's a long way from Philadelphia, he said. The other side of the world. It could be years before I get back. If ever. Her stomach rolled. She took a deep breath but still felt dizzy. One day soon, he'd kiss her goodbye and she'd never see his face again. That was the reality. Lots of men and women faced the same end. Other couples in the garden were probably having the same conversation. Let's cut it short, she said. I know what you're going to say. You do, he said. Yes. You've had a lot of fun, but they're recalling you, and it's a long way, so one day soon we'll have to say goodbye for good. His eyebrows scrunched. That's not what I was going to say. It isn't? No. Why can't we have fun together for the rest of our lives? What? He got on one knee, and just like in the movies, he held her hands in his. Will you marry me? Her ears buzzed. She must have heard him wrong. What? Marry me? Please? The skin tingled on her shoulders and arms. She stared, not breathing, caught in a spell. Say something, he said. If you're worried about where we'll live... We can talk it out. The Navy will return me to the States, and honestly, I want to go back. I haven't seen my folks in three years. Of course, she said. We'll go to the U.S. Really? And you'll marry me? Yes. I love you. I'll go with you to Philadelphia and meet your folks and marry you. I love you too, he said.
more than words will ever say. She pulled Jesse onto the bench, and like a thousand other couples that night in Australia, they made plans for a woman in love to move far from her home. Wow, April says. Sheila's coming to America. I can't wait. What? No, hold on a minute. Philadelphia? says Natalie. Seriously? I get that Jesse was American, and that was cool, but Philadelphia? She wears her skepticism like a new outfit. Honey, I say to April, the stories are kind of over. Sheila survived the war, so that's good. But what happens next, says April. She sits with her back against the headboard and spot in her lap. His front paws rest in her hands. So they live happily ever after, says Natalie. Sarcasm tints her voice. Her eyes grow a tad mean. If she smiles, I'll become cross. In Philadelphia, says April. Um, Natalie gives me a you-dug-the-hole look. April detects the vibe between her sister and me. What's wrong with Philadelphia? It's a great place for Sheila to live. There are so many things she can do. Visit the Liberty Bell, tour City Hall, eat a cheesesteak at Joe's. April's list grows ever longer, and I search for a way out. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs, so in some ways, Sheila's destination makes things easier for me. I can relate to the setting, but I have a problem. Julie told me the stories long before marriage or kids. They fascinated me. Like the girls, I probed Julie for more details, pestered her to repeat certain stories. Telling the stories to Natalie and April has allowed me to relive my courtship with Julie, to taste our young love again. She told me the stories about Queensland when we were visiting my parents in Brigantine. We walked to the beach one night and sat in the sand. I closed my eyes and listened to the surf as Julie related adventures filled with danger and daring and excitement. The stories, as Julie told them to me, ended with Jessie's proposal in the Royal Botanic Garden. I never pressed her for more details. Sheila had survived the war, and that was enough for me. The best stories always end with youth. The future, still limitless for Sheila at the age of 28, never shines as brightly again. There's so much I want to know, says April. Does Sheila make it to America? Does she marry Jesse? Do they have children? April has a round face and faithful eyes. Her hands are relaxed as they rub the fur on Spot's back. You can do it, Daddy. Tell us another story. My heart drops like an express elevator from the 46th floor. I'm still near perfect in April's eyes, but one day soon she'll figure out the truth. I'm just a flawed single parent raising his kids the best he can. I'll go to great lengths to defer that discovery for a year or a month, or even a single day. 
I don't know what happened to Sheila in America, but I know someone who does. Okay, that's the end of the episode Honor Ride, and we've covered a lot of ground. Now, during the story, when it becomes obvious that Jesse Flynn will soon be recalled to the U.S., he proposes to Sheila, and she accepts his marriage proposal. But this, of course, creates the enormous logistical challenge of Sheila moving all the way around the world. If the marriage goes through, Sheila will become what is known as a war bride. Now, I got curious about Australian war brides and did a little research on that subject. In my search for material, I came across a book about Australian war brides by Robin Aerosmith, a very interesting book. It's titled All the Way to the USA, and it tells the stories of many Australian women who fell in love with U.S. soldiers, married them, and moved to the U.S. for the rest of their lives. All told, some 15,000 Australian women married American servicemen. Now, in Thomas's world, April is overjoyed at this development because Jesse Flynn is a native of Philadelphia. So his proposal means Sheila must move close to where April now lives. Now, let's remember, April is eight years old, so it seems natural that this sort of development in the story would excite her and she wants to hear more stories, which creates a huge problem for Thomas because his deceased wife, Julie, never told him any stories about what happened to Sheila after she came to America. Now, this episode wraps up book two, which took place almost entirely in the Australian state of New South Wales. In our next episode, we will begin book three, which takes place in America. In the first story, which is titled Rittner Street, we will learn something of what happened to Sheila when she moved to Philadelphia. Now, if I could, I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing. If you're enjoying the Sheila stories, please tell your friends. They can subscribe to the podcast, read the stories on my website, or they can find the full set of stories on Amazon. It's fun for me to tell the stories one at a time on the podcast, but I know it's difficult to follow the ongoing narrative so I've made the full set of stories available as a novel. If you're one of those folks who likes to read ahead to the end, or if you just want to help out a starving artist like me, this is your big chance. To find the novel, go to Amazon and type The Sheila Stories by Patrick Kelly into the search bar. On today's episode, we heard music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Felix Bloom and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.